and welcome to another episode of the Get Football Tactics podcast. I'm your host Neil Shalat, and I'm delighted to say that once again I have been joined by Varun Vasudevan. How excited are you for this one, Varun? I'm actually pretty excited about this one. I suggested the topic. I had a lot of names in mind, and I know you guys also are going to debate with me a lot. So I'm actually super excited about this uh, conversation. And as always, nice to be here with you and Alex. Yeah, the group chat was in shambles before this. Varun was threatening Alex about some of his opinions. So, uh, Alex, are you are you ready to stand up for yourself? I think so. I have just realised I'm third billing in the introduction on a show that I used to host by myself. So I don't know how that's happened. <laughs> but yeah, so I guess I'm up for the fight. It's a yeah. it's a saving the best for the last kind of deal, Alex. You're ah, the best of us. You, you, that's so cute. Uh, well, so I, I guess let's talk about what we will talk about today. Our topic is more of a broad one this time as opposed to the sort of usual team-focused ones that we've done for the most part. Uh, today we'll be talking about profiling. So in general, we'll talk about player profiling, how it works, what you can do wrong, because misprofiling is a big issue. Uh, we'll talk about profiling players in within how a team's tactical context work we'll talk about leagues and also to sort of ground our discussion in you know reality so people have an idea what we're saying we'll discuss a few players who we find interesting in this regard you know some who might be misprofiled or some who have unique profiles that aren't really used as they should be so we'll have i think six of those time allowing but first of all uh, let's start by talking about what profiling is Anyone want to prepare a definition of profiling, guys? Hmm. I think I can take a crack at it first. Yeah, um, Professor Varun, go ahead. <laughs> I think it's understanding a player not only in terms of, you know, their technical attributes, but also things like their traits, their personality, their habits, the things they like around them, the things they like to continuously do in context with the tactics they're in, the, maybe the league they're in. So understanding a player from all of those points of view and then building a profile about them that this is what they're probably good at, this is probably where they should play and this is how we should surround them and get the best out of them. That's, I mean, my rough idea of it. What do you guys think? I, d- I don't think because I wouldn't change that much at all. I guess uh, just to sum up would be like, if you imagine, if I imagined to play a profile in my head, it would be a list of everything you want to know about that player, in what they do good, what they do bad, what setups they work well in, what setups they do not work well in. And yeah, I think Varun uh, smashed it there. Yep, I, I guess you guys have covered it all. So don't really have. Thanks much for listening, to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> nice episode, guys. Short one this time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, let's let's now get into maybe misprofiling then because. It happens quite a lot, far more than you might expect in professional football. And Should we I, talk about why it might happen a lot? Yeah, go on. Well, I, I, I'd say, like, because we're about to basically say managers have been playing players wrong. I think it is worth pointing out that I don't think any of us think, you know, there's not Manchester, well, there is Manchester United player in here, but for just for his name, it's, I don't think any of us think like Eric Ten Hag doesn't know what he's doing, or even someone like Frank Lampard doesn't know what a player is good at. But I feel like like misprofiling often occurs because a player is being put in a, a position where they're not looking as good, but it's to the benefit of the rest of the team. Like for tenure at PSG, for example, he's not covered today, but he's been played as like a left winger at times in possession, 
so Mbappe could come inside. In a sense, that's misprofiling him because he's not a left winger, but it's it, it's benefiting the rest of the side. So I think, like, am I right in saying you guys can correct like what I we're think, discussing? To, go on. No, I think that's a good point you make, but I think there's two things. So one is these cases that you can. I think Vitinha is a great example. Um, and it's true that, you know, in these cases, you're putting the team ahead of the player. But at the same time, I also do think there are certain examples where uh, it's just pure misprofiling, like just got it wrong. I think one of them uh, we'll discuss uh, f- from one of the players I've picked out where I think it's, a, you know, a plain case of the manager just doesn't get it. And I don't know where it is. Am I, um, do I think that I know more than the manager? Eh, probably not. But I think if, even if you look at Obviously, these players have played under other people before for other teams. And so w- once you analyze all of that, I do find sometimes that we have cases where something is just not working. But I see Varun has his hand up. So go on, Varun. Yeah, I mean, good points made. Uh, agree with Alex on that's one type of misproiling. Agree with you on the second type. And I think the, to add to your point, it's probably... Um, when a manager sees a player is like 6 on 10 on something or 8 on 10 or something and they just think they can fix that 6 on 10 part or they think, you know, that in my system will become a strength and then they rely on that or or they think that conversion will be fine. I think those are the actual issues. It's not like, as Alex said, a manager has no clue how to use a player, but they probably overthink or they oversimplify or they just you know, are a little overconfident that I can fix this part of the player and make him, you know, like that uh, for my tactic. Whatever the role is in my tactic, I can mold him to it because he seems like a good player. And this often happens when they buy a young player for a lot of money and then they have to use them and they feel like this is such a talented player. He has so much talent. Come on, there must be some way in which I can fit them. And I think that's where a lot of lot of the problems also start. Yeah, and maybe this is... You know, maybe it's an opinion that won't put me in a very good light. But I do think in the elite level of professional football, there are sometimes some managers who pop by who aren't really that good. And I, I, you know, I don't want to name names, but I think we all have some in mind. And often these people tend to be ex-players who had great playing careers, but maybe, you know, it, it doesn't work for them. This is referring to Lampard and Gerard. Lampard and Gerard. It's quite clear. It's Neil. You weren't making it particular. You weren't making it very like you know. They're ex players. Not much experience. <laughs> I, I, I said the name without saying the name, so I think I did a good job there. But anyway, I think the yeah, last word on misprofiling. Uh, I have to give a shout out to Umir, uh, who's at Umir F one on Twitter, because he. I mean, he, he, I mean, like profiling is his thing, right? So he will come up with some crazy ideas sometimes. Sometimes they work and he looks like a genius. Sometimes they don't. But I, I really do appreciate his creativity uh, in sort of, you know, the way he views players and the way he, he thinks they can be used in different ways. So uh, do follow him. Uh, if if you want to have your timeline filled with profiling Indeed, stuff. Indeed, I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to meet him. He's a very nice guy and a very smart man. Indeed. That's... So let's now move on to our next point, which is a c- couple of points on how profiling works. So let's first maybe talk about profiling within a team's tactical context, because this is something I feel is very important. Because, you know, when we talk about sort of 
the, the the different types of profiles there are and the different types of roles there are you have to remember that not every system has every single type of role within it i think a great example was recently some former argentinian footballer i forget who it was was it juan riquelme i might be wrong but mm-hmm. he basically said that he's glad that he's not playing right now at a time when the 4-3-3 is sort of the dominant formation and i mean you know there's loads of stuff talked about and written about the deaths of the traditional number 10 and stuff so it's it's always important to remember in my opinion that uh when we think about profiling we have to understand the the team's context the team's tactical context that the player is operating in now obviously that was a very basic example um but maybe to to give you something more concrete let's say there's a team such as manchester city for example who love to use you know wide wingers who fully hold the width uh, and receive the ball almost along the touch line and then go from there right so now if, for such a team if you have a sort of a more inside forward type winger um someone who who is good off the ball can sort of attack the far post uh and and poses a decent goal threat and is a danger inside the half space then they'd probably not fit too well in that team now i'm not saying they'd be bad you know they might still do quite well in that role depending on sort of their style uh, and their qualities but it's probably not the best usage of them so i think ultimately what it boils down to uh profiling is finding the best way to use a player uh and now this is constrained by a team's context so now you know as you guys um sort of discussed sometimes you might sign a player for a lot of money sometimes it might have been signed under you know a previous manager uh but it's it's just so much money that you can't afford to bench that player then maybe you will have to sort of make some trade offs uh and use them in a not ideal role for that player but something that's best for the team and i think this is where the example of vitinha that alex gave works perfectly because he's i mean we know he's not a winger right he's a midfielder but all things considered he's probably the best guy in the team to play that specific role where he's a sort of a number 8 in the build up and then a left winger in the opposition half so these are these are certain cases where this does occur i think alex has something to add to that so go on yeah i'd say you could use the other vitinha in league as an example or basically anyone at marseille who <laughs> i mean misprofile misprofiling in a sense has just cost today Marcelino's job uh, at the time of recording um the manager of the league inside uh, pe- they signed Unahi under previous manager who could play in like a nice sort of inside forward or like attacking playmaker role and he he's the main sort of guy for Tinier as well a nice line forward and now Marcelino's come in plays a 4-4-2 has shafted Unahi out wide outraged the fans it's taken seven games to get annoyed at his style and that's just like one of the little micro frustrations um from Marseille fans. See, it can be very costly. Yep, absolutely. I think we also do have to consider wider context in terms of leagues as well. I think Warren has something uh, to add on that point. Yeah, I mean, really good points for you guys on team context, uh, which I totally agree with. And there's also you know league translation or you know like simple thing bundesliga attacks i mean we've heard this so much and i actually don't like the word much i think it's just you know a mean way to 
underrated, a really fun and awesome league. But I think where it does objectively hold value is there are some context in which players do well in Bundesliga. I mean, we know it's an end-to-end transitional league. We know counter-pressing is the main tactic for a lot of the teams. We know there are spaces behind the fullbacks. And a lot of the attackers are very good space explorers. So, we have seen transfers where when players go from Bundesliga to another league, suppose the Premier League, I mean, that's usually how it's uh, the Bundesliga tax is thrown around. Let's take Timo Werner as an example. And a very good space explorer, but the spaces are just not there in the Premier League as much as you'd like. Teams are a little better at defending deep. Teams are a little better in their rest defense and defending transitions in general. And he just did not get the space to thrive. And back to Bundesliga and he's doing okay. So I think some of these league differences also have to be uh, taken into account. There is a reason why Portuguese league to Premier League transfers look a little better. The physicality uh, is a little more at par. So there are some leagues from which teams also smartly recruit for a certain reason. So these these kind of... Uh, League transition also has to be, you know, uh, thought of. Another example of a transition is small team to big team. Now, this is something I have noticed a lot over the uh, last 10 years. You, you, you have these players who do really well in a small team because they see most of the ball. They create all the chances. They have the freedom to stay ahead as their more defensive-minded players cover for them. So, they probably don't defend much. Uh, but then when they impress and get that big move to a big team and then they have to share the ball with lot more uh, you know good players quality players who can also create who can also score then it starts getting tough for them when they have to own their side of the defensive responsibility they have to press they have to defend and they just can't be that one person standing ahead you know they were probably the mbappe of their team but now they're just one of the regular members of a big team then it starts getting tough so i think Small team to big team translations are also one very, very big point and sometimes why player transfers and in general understanding player profiles goes wrong. Even after you understood them, they might not work. Neil, what do you have to add on this? Yeah, no, this just reminded me of uh, an interesting discussion that uh, I think we had maybe a fair while ago on, on sort of the football analytics Twitter space, which is sort of bringing the basketball um like the basketball ideas of, of float raisers and ceiling lifters into football. So, you know, this is basically the point you were making, which is that there's some types of players who are float raisers who basically can come in and improve the base level of the team. So they can make the team, like, at their worst, a little bit better. And there's ceiling raisers, who, uh, ceiling lifters, rather, who can come into a team and uh, and sort of take, you know, take up their their maximum sort of their maximum potential uh, so for example i think bruno fernandes is a great example of someone who may be a ceiling lifter so you know if if you put him in a manchester united team which is in disarray he won't always look that good but if if you if you build something where he he like the the part pieces around him are sort of well in place and everything's working properly then he can really sort of take them up a notch in their maximum level, like with his creativity in the final third. And now that's not to say that he's he he will look you know terrible when United aren't good. I mean, he still looks a very good player, but he 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 can lift 
their ceiling so much more. So, you know, that would make him a ceiling lifter. But ob- obviously, there's much more to it. But I think that's a simple distinction that we do talk about a fair bit. But I think let's now move in uh, to our next point. And I think the fact that you spoke about the Bundesliga is very good in this case because the first player that I wanted to highlight is uh, Kai Havertz, who I think is sort of, I mean, he, he is the best person to give an example to when we're talking about profiling. I mean, the moment because, we discuss this topic of misprofiling or confused profiles, I think the first name all three of us thought was Kai Havertz. So, I mean, yeah. it's no surprise that we have to start with him and figure this out. Let's figure this out, guys. Yeah, so, I mean, the question is, what is Kai Havertz? Is he a striker? Is he a number 10? Is he a number 8? What is he? And the answer, I think, is it's not that simple. He is definitely not a striker. You can't put him up top uh, and get the best out of him because he, he does like to have the ball to his feet a fair bit more than a sort of typical striker would. Number 10 is sort of the closest thing which I would associate him with, but I wouldn't call him a typical number 10 either because he, I mean, for Leverkusen, he was sort of the everything player, right? Like he he would drop deep uh, and help them in the build-up. He'd also create a decent amount of chances and he'd also get a very good amount of goals. So I think in that system, the sort of the free-ish role that he was given worked perfectly uh, for him. Um, and I mean, he's definitely not a number eight either because you're limiting him too much when he's that deep. And he's uh, like he's a very good sort of press leader. So he's defensively good in that sense. But I don't know how good he can be at the top level defending deeper, like maybe defending around his box. So in that sense, I think, you know, we all know where it... I mean, <laughs> his his time at Chelsea is really tough to say much about because like that club was in utter shambles with like managers going left and right and tons of players coming in. Uh, so it's, I mean, any Chelsea player at that point is is really tough to analyze. But I think Arsenal are doing a pretty good job with him uh, in that sort of the left-sided, very advanced number eight role where he is part of the front two out of possession. Um, He will drop deep sometimes and help with the build-up, but he does tend to get involved in the final third lot, both creating. And now, obviously, there's, there's still obviously issues with him. I think confidence is a big one because he still looks utterly devoid of confidence in front of goal. Uh, but I think, sort of profile-wise, Arsenal are doing a pretty good job with him. But I think, Varun, you have something to add. So, go on. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of good points uh, made by you. I think this is the example of a player you can't describe by position. Like, you can't go into the debate of striker or 10 or 8. You have to measure him in terms of traits. Um, what I would measure Kai Havertz would be on, can you maximize the few things he's good at and minimize the things he's not good at. Because a player like this becomes tough to handle when he has some glaring deficiencies. For example, his passing is pretty bad. I actually actually think very badly of his simple sense of just passing accurately, especially in deeper areas in midfield. He's not the guy you want, um, you know, stringing a lot of passes, having a lot of the ball in first phase and second phase. We saw him make a few mistakes recently as well when he was playing for Arsenal. Um, In general, you don't want him deep. Then you don't want him uh, doing a lot of defensive work deep. Like you can't rely on his positioning. You can't have him as 
um, the center midfield in a 4-4-2 block, for example. That is another issue. Now, what are his best traits? He's a very good space explorer. He's the guy who gets into gaps, who runs, makes some really nice channel runs, even, you know, striker runs between defenders. So his best role at Leverkusen came as either a number 10 or a right-sided, you know, winger or number 8. So again, he played multiple roles. But in all those cases, he was in the right half space and number 10 area with license to get into the striker area. And that's where you want him. It can also work on the left half space. I'm just talking about Leverkusen. Uh, That's where you want him. And depending on the phase of play, you want him to move and support accordingly. It it can't be a static role. You can't put him as a number 10 and ask him to remain there. You can't put him on the left 8 and ask him to remain there. You have to allow him to make runs into the box. So then you need a striker who can hold up and probably play him in or who can vacate the striker space so that he can run into it. So that's where then the team dynamics start coming up. And I think he has struggled so far because you need so many, you know, instruments, you need so many patterns to get the best out of him. And it's just really tough for managers and for teams to do that. You can't really construct a whole team around the person unless, you know, that person is like Ronaldo or Messi or someone who's getting a lot of output and Havertz is not that type. So I think that's why he struggled. The... The care and the concern and the effort that goes into getting the best out of him. I don't think top teams have that kind of patience uh, unless you're guaranteeing a lot. Uh, I think, as you said, Arsenal have more or less figured a lot of things out. I still wasn't very happy with the fact that he was dropping so deep in, in some games. The United game itself, he was almost dropping as the second member of the pivot alongside Declan Rice uh, to help build up. That's not where you want uh, have it. A better pressing team would have, you know, killed him uh, at that point. So, yeah, I mean, I think Arsenal have, have done better, but I still think it, this is not his most, most ideal role. But I think there is scope uh, for him to contribute. Neil has left a message in our chat telling me to transition into Jao Felix. So, listeners, that's exactly what I'm going to do now after Varun's explanation of Kai Havertz. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. I hope that's smooth enough for you, Neil. Um, Jao Felix. Great stuff, Alex. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Jao Felix. Uh, I think there's less to cover on him. He's another player that's, I think, as much as Kai Havertz has had, as far as outlined, as much energy put into, as much care put into, and trying to get the best out of him. Um, And it's probably another player like Kai Havertz who just attracts so much stick from the fans. But we could probably keep this section short because... Although it was only one game at the weekend, uh, Barcelona played Rabatis, and it was probably Jean Felix's best performance since he left Portugal. And I don't think that's um, an overestimate. It was sensational uh, for Barcelona. I think Chavi's worked it out how to profile. That is true. I mean, I don't think even at Atletico he ever put such a good performance. That is true. There we go. So, what happened at the weekend was he played. As the left winger in Chavi's 4-3-3, which morphed into a 2-3-5 in possession, uh, Balde would push forward, as probably everyone knows by now, the left back goes to left wing. Felix came inside, and he spoke after the game about how he wanted to play really close to Robert Lewandowski. And there was a great graphic going around. I think it was by Neil Gardner, um, the better Neil on football Twitter, that it showed like the <laughs> pass the pass maps of... Um, 
the past months of Barcelona's games, every, every game in La Liga this season, and every single one, Lewandowski is just completely on his own. Felix plays right next to him. He played this second striker, like he did at Benfica. He didn't have to make big runs in behind. He just had to occupy space between the lines, pick up the ball, do creative things, take shots, and that's exactly what he's good at. At Atletico, no problem was, in my opinion, this was again. This is a point of what we said in the intro, uh, misprofiling a team context, a tactical concept. Um, Atletico are a team like to counter attack, sit deep. Felix is often tasked with carrying the ball forward over like 30, 40 yards towards goal. That's not his game. He's not a very quick player. He's a tricky guy in between the lines. Chelsea, another player, another victim of that football club, actually was all right. He was their top scorer. Uh, in the time he played there, a grand total of four goals. Look at him go. Uh, but that was also a case. I think he did well there because of, he could just kind of do what he wanted as there was no tactical structure. But at Barcelona, keep an eye out for him because I think we're finally seeing João Felix play really well. And he won't turn 24 until November. And that little withdrawn well between the lines where he gets to smack balls in from outside of the box, which isn't just, you know, casual sense. He's a really good ball striker. And he just gets to link up with Lewandowski and other players in tight spaces. Oh, it's, it's wonderful to see. Go and see the highlights if you haven't already. Uh, now, that's a player I think will do really well. I think we've got a player coming up. Uh, you two will discuss, I imagine, who may be done at the top level. Or he may be off his, off to Saudi. Let's hear about Jaden Sancho. Is it Varun? Yeah, I mean, um, I put Jaden Sancho right after Joao Felix in our list. Because I actually think they're both very similar. And I just want to explain why. As you said, Joao Felix started as left finger and got into the left half space as Balde, you know, becomes like the widest person in the 2-3-5. I think Jaden Sancho's best areas of operation are also very similar. That left half space on number 10 area is where he's best at. And... Ideally, you want him to either play as a left winger and then have an overlapping fullback and he comes there. You can also play him as a left number eight. Ten Hag has done that a few times and then he moves into the left half space. You can also have him as a striker drop into the left half space. We saw that in preseason. He played as a false nine, dropped into the half space and then the wingers got in and he could play them. And I think the issues with both players have been similar. Both of them are defensively very poor. This is point number one. Felix also is, he's defensively bad and Sancho also is. This was true even at their Dortmund, uh, Atletico, Benfica days as well. Secondly, they are not very um, big goal threats or big volume shooters. They are not big volume creators, although both of them are pretty creative. And they are not wide wingers who can take on their man. You don't want them wide on the touchline trying to beat their you know, full backs and put across and they're not that tight. So then they, you're left with, and then you can't play them as a pivot center midfielder because they're not defensively good. So you're left with this number 10-ish half space role where they have to play very close to a striker. Sancho's best was behind Haaland. Joao Felix is doing so well behind Lewandowski, as you just mentioned. So that role, that support striker role, just behind a finisher with overlapping full backs to provide with so that they don't have to with some defensively good players so that they aren't required to defend too much. You deploy them in such a role and then hope that their creativity is enough for them to break defenses or unlock defenses as much as possible. So I think that's why they're similar. 
there are differences. Sancho, I think, is a little better in terms of ball control in tight spaces and a little better of a progressive. Felix is a little better with his off-the-ball movement, his ability to get into spaces. But I think if Sancho gets a role very similar to the way Felix has gotten, as you just explained, I don't think his career is over at all. I don't think he's going to Saudi. You just mentioned Felix uh, turning... Felix is 23 right now and turns 24 next year. Jaden Sancho is 23 right now and turns 24 next year. My similarities are just endless today. Um, they're the same age and I would actually argue Sancho at Dortmund has better numbers than Felix has ever had in his life. At Atletico Madrid, Felix never got past that 2022. I don't think that's a very bold claim. I think that's fair. He was like the best player in Germany. Felix is like really good in Portugal for about three months. I think you're clear yeah. on that one, Varun. <laughs> yeah. I think Felix getting a 100 million move on his Benfica days is a lot more wild than Sancho getting a 70 million move based on his Dortmund three years. So, uh, I think Sancho has stuff going for him. He's just been dealt a really bad hand here at United. I mean, I think we've misused him constantly. Um, Solza used him on the wings and Tenag's not using him at all. I think he's a goner from this team. And I think that's fair. We don't have a place for him. Rashford is our left finger. Bruno is our number 10. The two, and that was my problem with the Sancho signing, the two places where he plays well, you have your best players already. And make him making it as a right winger, I'm not very, very big on that. Although he showed it at Dortmund. I think he's a little better in central areas. So, I think Sancho can also have the Felix renaissance, as uh, you have said, in a different team where he gets his ideal role. What do you think, Alex? I, I just wanted to throw in, uh, I'm working on a, a video about Jaden Sancho, actually. Not a, a one for the athletic, more about his story. And um, I just thought it is worth mentioning that, you know, Felix, that I like the comparisons. I think one place where they differ is Felix has been Atletico for three seasons straight, um, and technically three and a half, under the same manager, Diego Simeone, largely playing the same system. Whereas uh, Sancho, you know, I'm not a Manchester United fan, so I've lived quite a happy life, unlike you. Uh, so this was news to me. So I just thought it was worth throwing out on the podcast that, like, when he arrived, uh, he was meant to be given number seven shirt. Ronaldo got it. Uh, Schalke gets sacked like 12 games there. That's the guy who brings him in. So now Rangnick comes in. Whole different plan. Uh, Rangnick starts playing him well in a 4 4 2. Then Ronaldo says it starts pressuring him. It was reported by the like Ronaldo Gopalos pressured uh, Rangnick to go to two up front. Um, it is, I think it was 4 4 3 2, 4 4 2. So Sancho's position where he's playing well got negated. It just feels like. Felix has struggled himself in like one consistent system. Like Sancho's never had a system, it feels like. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, totally that, agree with you, Alex. Neil, go on. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's another thing, right? Um, because we can talk about profiling as much as we want, but there's also something to be said about consistency and like a player simply getting time to get used to a system and to get used to a role. And you know, this is like the point we made about Chelsea earlier, which is that it's really unfair to assess any of their players over the last year just because the utter chaos has been going on. So it's, it's you know, the lack of stability makes it so difficult for someone to thrive uh, at that club. So you can't really hold anything against them from their time. Um, before we close this topic, I had one last thing I wanted to say. 
and this is interesting and it goes back to a point i made earlier so before sancho's move uh, to united um, i'll make this a quiz again so that you guys can get involved can you name me the three players who had the highest usage percentage in their teams basically their teams used them the most for passes for chances created all those Wait, kind of things what's the sample here the whole season this is for the season a uh, top five leagues Oh, top five leagues. Uh, so which, which players had a higher usage of what? Just like what things lead into a chance. Yeah, I mean moves that lead to a chance. So basically, their involvement in possession in the chain of possession, right? Which usually end, ends Wait, up in a on, shot or a chance. Is, is this is this Opta's um, passing sequence involvement or is this usage rate? This is usage rate. Okay, well, I mean, no, for me, no, aren't really fun at parties. Go <laughs> <laughs> on, there. You uh, guess first. But hold on, no, no, no. I'm, I'm still confused. Which season is this? Uh, the season before Sancho moved to United. Am I saying 1920? Uh, 20, uh, that long? 2021. Yeah, 2021 is what I'm thinking. Yeah. So the one before that, 1920. Oh, four plays. Uh, it was yeah. Top five yeah. leagues. Yeah. Uh, and there are three very obvious names. That's the reason okay. I asked. I, Messi was still at Barcelona, yeah? Lionel Messi? Yes. yes. He's first. That's, yeah, obviously. Messi at Barcelona is first. Alex. Uh, oh, God. Um, oh, I don't know. Is it per 90 or total? Because if so, it would be Neymar PSG. No, no, no. Total. <laughs> yeah. Not Neymar. <laughs> um, oh, God. That's tough. Uh, plays, he just plays a lot, basically. Uh, Kevin De Bruyne? Okay, so you're close. Mm-hmm. I'll just uh, give hey, you the on, answer. Let me guess. Oh, yeah. Uh, my third guess. This is 1920, yeah? Uh, 2021. Oh. What? Come on, Neil. Uh, okay, wait, hold on. Then let me quickly check. Uh, you can't check. That's cheating. No, no, no. I'm, I'm checking if this player was at this club at the time. It's cheating. Okay, yeah. Uh, Jack Grealish. No. Okay, so no. I'll I'll just give the answer. Okay, right. <laughs> it's Bruno Fernandes. Bruno had a full oh, season course. by then. Right, so, yeah. and the third one was Sancho for Dortmund. So, Ooh. yeah, and that was one thing I had pointed Wait, but out. But is this normalized? I don't think this. Uh, Neil, be... stop ruining his quiz. Let him live. <laughs> He's trying to make one point, and we ruined it. <laughs> uh, I'm like, yeah, never mind. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, it was Messi for Barcelona, Bruno Fernandes for United, and Sancho for Dortmund. And it just goes to show the kind of, you know, ball possession Sancho enjoyed, the kind of responsibility he enjoyed, the kind of creative burden he enjoyed. And then he gets put in the same team, just beside the number two guy. I mean, it was always impossible for both of them to fit and be creative engines. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it was always a tough task. One of them would have had to have become a more... Of, uh, had to have a more off-ball component to compensate, you know. So uh, that was just one point I remembered before we closed the whole Felix Sancho thing. We're sorry for ruining that, Farron. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fun. It was fun. Uh, I expect you guys to ruin things, so it's okay. <laughs> Good He's a Man United fan. He's used to fixing yeah. <laughs> I'm used to it, yeah. Uh, well, uh, anyway, I guess let's go on to our uh, next one. I think Alex has some things to say about Enzo Fernandez. Yes, I think this is a I think this is a great player to talk about in this context. I'm what I'm going to do uh, because we we spoke about this in the group chat. This is one where 
we think maybe opinions will be similar, but maybe slightly divided. Uh, I'm just going to lay out the case, in my opinion, what's happening to Enzo Fernandez at Chelsea at the moment and how I feel he's being misprofiled and how it's negatively impacting the team. And I'll lay out that argument quickly and then you two come back and let's see where we agree and disagree. So Enzo Fernandez um, at Benfica, before he moved to Chelsea, he played in a 4-2-3-1. He played alongside Florentino Luis, uh, who did a lot of defensive work for him. Uh, this allowed Enzo Fernandez to kind of drift forward. He'd be able to play passes into the box. Well, in build-up, he'd be able to play a really big part, complete a ton of passes with Benfica. And then in the final third, he could hover around the penalty area and um, like make passes into the box, like chips to the back post, little reverse passes into the box. That was his role at Benfica. Um, at the World Cup for Argentina, he came in, I think it was a second group stage game. Uh, you can tell how much I've studied this player because I've got no notes on this whatsoever. Uh, in the second group stage game, Argentina were doing really bad. He came in and he was basically a lone six and he did all of Argentina's build-up. There is that one goal he scored, I think it was in that game, where it was around the edge of the box. Get a bit of a, sh- a sign there of what he can do. Uh, Chelsea last season, he played um, basically nearly every game alongside Mateo Kovacic. Uh in a double pivot, which meant Kovacic, very different player to Florentino Luis. He wants to go forward. He wants to carry the ball forward, which meant Enzo Fernandez often was quite shackled. So his role was often limited to more of like a, a shackled eight or a slightly progressive six. And there was big complaints last season, uh, me being a complainer as well, that you need to let him have more freedom, go a bit further forward in the final third when Chelsea are in like their second phase of build-up and then their final phase. Needs to give him the freedom to play passes into the box. He didn't get that often enough at Chelsea last season. Now, Pochettino's come in. We should caveat this. Chelsea have got a ton of injuries. Uh, it's why their their bench looks more like a list of global cities than footballers. Uh, but Enzo Fernandez, I think he's been a victim in a sense in the system. I did see somewhere that he's asked Bruce Pochettino to play further forward. Um, not 100% on that. Like, what the exact line was, but I don't think he meant like this. Essentially, Chelsea were without Nkunku, they were without Carney Chukumweka, they were without a number 10 and a 4-2-3-1. Uh, so what Enzo Fernandez has done, um, in the first phase of build-up, he's positioned probably as one of Chelsea's third or fourth highest players up the pitch, uh, like nearer the striker, very deep between the lines, which means he's not playing a big role in build-up. Uh, he's looking to receive the ball further up the pitch, and the idea is he'll turn and make passes in behind towards um, Sterling or Nicholas Jackson, who typically are the guys running in behind. He did this for periods against Liverpool in the first half on the first uh, game of the season. And it did work at times. He set a couple of players through. I think he even might have even got an assist for Sterling. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but he's either like a, pre, a near assist or something like that. Uh, but we're recording just after a game against Bournemouth, where I think it's really fair to say it didn't work. He completed some of the fewest passes on the pitch for Chelsea. And my critique of this would be that, yes, he's been used to fill a problem in the, the team's tactical setup. But the issue is that, yes, if he gets the ball, he can quickly play someone in behind because he's a very good passer, if we haven't made that clear already. However, if he's one of the furthest players up the pitch, there's no one to pass it to other than like Nicholas Jackson, who could be marked out of the, marked out by defenders. And the broader point that was exposed by Bournemouth, Enzo Fernandez 
really good at receiving the ball and build up and playing it forward, being the guy to make the passes into players advanced. Not very good at receiving the ball if he's back to goal, not having a clear picture of the pitch behind him. And therefore, Chelsea's build-up can feel slow, it can feel stuttered, they lose the ball more easily in the midfield area. And my argument would be for Chelsea to be better, they find another solution to their team that involves Enzo Fernandes playing in double pivot. Those are my thoughts. Neil, we'll go to... Well, both of you had your hand up there. Wow. Okay, Varen, we'll go to you first. Do you think I'm wrong or right? Obviously, you think I'm right, but where do you think I'm really right? Um, One, I think you're right. Second, I think you're totally right. <laughs> I mean, I honestly don't have too many arguments at all. I would like to add some insight in the sense that why is this happening? And I remember Graham Potter saying last year that at one point there were so many injuries and so many new players he was just thinking of the simplest system that works he because a lot of the arguments were why isn't he doing all his brighton build up stuff and you know people coming deep and overloads and all those things his tactics seemed very simplistic for chelsea and his argument was i am just literally getting a functional 11 and getting basics right and i think to an extent, Pochettino is also struggling with that because if you see the number of injuries they have and the players they can put out, immediately you know that there is no creative force at all. And Pochettino is thinking, I have Sterling, I have Jackson, two really good runners. If I just have one guy consistently playing them in, I can get those two goals in a match to you know see out the game. And that kind of simplistic thought is, I think, the driving force behind selecting Enzo Fernandez higher up as a number 10 or the highest 8. Um, in an yeah. ideal world, as you said, he should be the you know the second last uh, midfield guy, the, the guy just beside the holding six who is handling the build-up, helping in second phase progression and also joins the front five um, and helps in final third creativity. And I think over time, maybe when everyone comes back and you have options like Kaisido and Lavia um, beside him, then he'll start getting once Nkunku, especially when he comes back and he plays number 10. But then I don't think Nkunku is also super creative, but then it'll at least be a little better and so can go and help him. So I think it will sort out over time. Again, I think this is profiling because of a team's needs, which is something Neil said earlier. This is profiling because of a team's gaps. It is not a profiling because uh, of lack of understanding of what Enzo does. I think Pochettino is smart enough. I think any person who watches Chelsea, as you just said, knows the issue. I think it's it's the current you know uh, need and gap of the team that is forcing uh, Pochettino's hand. Uh, Neil, what very, do you think? Is that a very good point? Yeah, but I, on. I, st- I still think they could do better, honestly, because as Alex pointed out very, very well, you really, really want Fernandez in your double pivot because he's so good at helping you build out. And Chelsea are having problems with that. And it's not like they don't have uh, attackers, right? So you could drop Fernandez into the pivot, uh, put maybe Sterling as a number 10, which is, uh, I guess, one of my profiling shouts, which is that I feel he's better in a more central position at this point as opposed to out wide. Um, not creative then, enough, man. I mean, yeah, yeah. Who, but, who's, who's playing the final pass? Fernandez, he you you push him. He's he's not going to sit back all all the time, right? He will he will advance in the final third. But I so think see, I mean that works, and I'm not saying it can't work. 
but I think that works when you have the ball a lot and you can against progress. Against teams like Bournemouth. That's, yeah, that's exactly. exactly where the problem was. So I think against I Bournemouth. Think, I think there's a big... I think I, I kind of meet in the middle between you two and Sterling playing down the middle, but Neil, I, there's a big flaw in your argument. Okay, so you're saying Sterling play 10. Mm. Who's the right winger? Nani Maduake. Yes. <laughs> Nani Maduake, who's... I don't... Has he even... Has he been seen in the Chelsea kit? Well, I mean... He, the, the, I don't think he's fit. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was on the bench all, all these games. I just well, No, no, he was, no, he was injured. He was injured, yeah. He's been oh, he injured was? recently. Uh, but oh, Cole Palmer and Matson are there. So, okay, yeah, let's exactly. throw one of them on the right. Okay. Yeah, Pal- Palmer, definitely, you can put a right winger. He, yeah, he, but yeah. Now we all get to the point where we say, let's put Ian Martin on the right. And, nah, like, yeah, not Ian Martin. I'm not digging no, this, 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 this is a sidebar. This is a sidebar. We can move on after. But someone tweeted me during the, the, the build-up to the Bournemouth game. Uh, well, so Chelsea, no, is in the game when I tweeted, Chelsea have subbed on two left backs in an attempt to win the game. And someone <laughs> said, no, Martin isn't a left back. He played left wing in pre-season. Just, just telling you, whoever that was on Twitter, two games of playing left wing in pre-season matches doesn't outweigh a season of left back in all of your professional football. That's your professional <laughs> football at Burnley winning the championship. That guy's a moron. Sorry, let, let's just tick me off there. I'll leave it back to you coming, too. Coming back to uh, the solution for Burnemouth, I'd actually propose a much simpler solution. They should have just swapped Enzo Fernandez and Conor Gallagher's roles. Oh, yeah. Gall- Gallagher I is the guy you it. want. Yeah, Gallagher was playing <laughs> pivot with Ugo Chuku and Enzo Fernandez was number 10 or the highest eight. They should have just swapped Fernandez and Gallagher. Gallagher's better as your number 10 or support striker guy. He's a good shout for a support striker, by the way. And Enzo Fernandez becomes the second eight, and Ugo Chuku the final six. I think that's. I, 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 th- I think I think we, we sort of right there just because I think you're you're onto a very interesting point. We should say for another podcast because I think the point you touched on there, Gallagher should be the number ten. I think that is actually a point where we could accuse Pochettino of genuinely misprofiling a player yeah. because Gallagher he seems yes. really he seems really set on case. Gallagher. Yeah, he seems really set on Gallagher being in the pivot. Like th- that doesn't seem to be necessity. He just seems set on that. So maybe maybe we hold it there because we're onto something even bigger. Look, maybe we can touch on a bigger pod coming up soon. Yeah, that fair enough. So then let's go on to our next player. Should be hopefully a shorter one, but I wanted to point this out um, to also maybe bring in a bit about how this w- works with like club football and international football which we know sometimes can be two widely different sports almost. So I think the big talking point in England is obviously Phil Foden um, and the fact that he doesn't start for the national team, even though he's clearly a very good player. Um, and apparently Gareth Southgate's logic is that he doesn't play as a midfielder for Manchester City, so he can't play as a midfielder for England, which I find very, very flawed. Um, number one, Manchester City play a completely different style compared to England. Uh, and Foden has indeed sometimes been used as a midfielder, in fact. But not re- not that often. Yes, he does tend to play as a winger much more now. So, fair enough. But the, the bigger point is that Manchester City play in the Premier League, which is, you know, I mean, the best league in the world, you know, whether you like it or not. Certainly the most, certainly the, the best level. Uh, in terms of quality, whereas England play international football, which is notoriously, I mean, not at nearly that level when it comes to like organization, um, which is natural because these these players will just meet for like two weeks for their national team and spend the rest of the time for their clubs. Obviously, they will look a lot more organized for their clubs. 
So now, um, for for the national team, I really don't understand why you can't play Foden as a midfielder, as an uh, you know, either an advanced eight or a number ten, where he will have tons and tons of space between the lines to exploit, which he's very good at exploiting. By, by the way, there was a time when Manchester City used a false nine, where he was a very good false nine in certain matches. So he would do that very very well. So I really really don't understand who, why. You can't use Foden as a midfielder in international football. Club football is a separate debate. I don't want to get into that now. But I think Southgate's logic here is very flawed. But Alex has something to add. Are you going to defend Southgate? Yeah, I am. Um, uh, I'm a big uh, Southgate defender, to be fair. But so I think where you're thinking is attack first. Southgate thinks defense first, and I don't blame him for that in international football. Yeah, you can't, I don't. I don't think it's viable. My double right. I don't think. It works for a Gareth Southgate team to have Jude Bellingham and Phil Foden in midfield. And let's be honest, it's going to have to be one of those two. I don't think it could be both in a Southgate team and maybe even like a normal team. So I think if you're picking between those, you want Bellingham in midfield and Foden like out wide. That'd be my counter. Uh, I I would uh, argue that, but I think Varun has his hand up. So Varun, do you have something to add? One, I agree with Alex for England. But I just wanted to add another point on Foden. And I think this is the argument I'm going to get a little flack for. Um, I've never looked as Foden as a midfielder. Like, even when he was breaking through at City and David Silva was ahead of him. I just could not see how we could do what David Silva could do. And here is where I want to bring up the earlier point we made on profiling about personality and traits or habits. I think Foden's technically very good. He can probably do everything David Silva can do technically on his day or, you know, in training. In match situations, his mentality or his composure is doesn't feel like a controller. He doesn't have that. I mean, this is a very overused word on social media, but he doesn't have that pause up. He doesn't have that calm, that composure, the, the ability to control and just, you know, look left and right. He often feels very rushed. He feels like someone who's accelerating the game or someone who wants to run a bit. And Guardiola even mentioned this a few times, I think, uh, last season, that he needs to know when to hold, when not to rush. And that's why he uses him a lot as a sub or uses him as a left finger. Because when he wants to accelerate the play or just, you know, give a bit of creative thrust, he gets in Foden. And I think that's something he's been trying to develop and he might get there, you know, next year or even the end of the season. But that is one thing I've always felt lacking uh, about Phil Foden and why I'm not a very big fan of seeing him as a controller yet. Yeah, I, I don't think he's a controller. Um, and yeah, I mean, as I said, either number 10 ideally or at best an advanced stage, they do play 4-2-3-1 a lot. So, you know, put him number 10. But I do take Alex's point about, I mean, Southgate's defense first approach, um, which is... I mean, yeah, I guess this is a, this moves into sort of different debate about international football, which is whether it's a case of putting your best players on the pitch or putting, you know, a, a defensively solid team because, you know, these are knockout matches where conceding a goal is, I mean, it, it can kill you a lot more than a league uh, season, for example. So, yeah, I, I guess it's interesting. But I still do feel that you could use him as a number 10 Bellingham, I think, is... I mean, it would limit Bellingham a bit, but I think you can push him in a, in a bit of a deeper role um, because, yeah, I do feel... Not like, after what Bellingham did in the international break. 
he's going nowhere what did he deeper. I, I i was not watching friendly games because i was instead watching you were watching kazakhstan or something yeah, that was not a friendly game that was a new qualifier <laughs> <laughs> yeah no you no you you're the last man in the world to play the card actually i'm too cool for the international no, break no, like when no, you're watching I, like that's not what i'm saying I, but you're I, watching like the Af- Afghanistani second tier. Like, come on. <laughs> nah, nah. Look, my only principle in watching football is never watch friendly games. That's that's my single principle. So I was not watching not friendly. So European qualifiers. Well, England. The England was also Scotland. qualifier. No, they played no, Scotland. Oh, that was okay, not a qualifier. That was a friendly. Yeah. Oh, See. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it's not friendly. It's England beat Scotland. <laughs> yeah, but that's a separate point. It's a friendly derby. <laughs> <laughs> No, so I mean, like, after after what Bellingham's been doing at club level and yeah. in that game, I mean, in that game too, he was like a number 10 and Rashford and everyone on the pitch was finding him with these amazing uh, channel runs and blindside striker runs, all those kind of things. His output is just really good as a 10. I mean, Foden probably cannot do what Bellingham does in an attacking role. And he also doesn't have the defensive and build-up upside that Bellingham gives. And that comes back to Alex's point that if you have to choose between them, I'm sorry, Foden, but he yeah. has to go. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I completely agree with you on that point and the defensive point. Attacking-wise, I, I mean, uh, I think Foden definitely has a lot of potential. So you're right that he can be a bit rushed sometimes. But like at his peak, you know, he can give you an insane amount of creativity. Um, so it's 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 an it's an interesting trade-off. Maybe one where you have to you know consider your opposition, who you're playing against. Like if it's a big knockout game, then maybe you don't play Foden. But I do feel like you know in these Euro qualifiers where he's putting Trent Alexander-Arnold in midfield sometimes. Like surely you can give Phil Foden a run out. But yeah, I, I guess I you know it, it's 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 Southgate. Let's 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 leave it there. Um, Right. Uh, I think Alex, do you have something to add, or should we? Uh, uh, no, I've just accidentally left my hand up. It got stuck. Yeah, never mind. Continue. Uh, yeah, you, uh, we've got a, a well, fucking like a potential Ballon d'Or winner with the, uh, this last one now. And you okay. have to give a mighty introduction to this one. Okay. Well, uh, Varun, do 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 you do you have anything to say to that? Because you are talking about Amadou Onana, and I think he's a great player. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know if Alex meant that as a joke, but he actually I is an amazing. He's quite serious. No, he's yeah. very good. He's very good. Yeah, he's very good. He's very good. The reason I bring him up is because he's good in multiple roles, and there's this often debate on is he a number six, is he a number eight. Uh, United fans want him as a Casemiro replacement. Uh, Liverpool, in between, were thinking of him as the you know, pivot partner to Trent, their number six, basically. And I think, I mean, I think one, he's a very good physical profile. He's typically, you know, he can cover large distances. He has a lot of power when he's running. And I think a lot of him being physically good and defensively good in terms of ball winning is the reason he's being misprofiled as a number six uh, by fans. So now here I'm attacking the fans because I think his managers have understood him well. Even at Lille, he played as the number 8 ahead of a holding 6. Even at Everton, um, someone else is usually the the holding 6 and he's playing as an attacking number 8. And that's why he's been looking very good for Everton. He has that license to drive and play in the final passes. But then, for Belgium, 
Martinez played him in the number six, and I don't know. Oddly, in the last match, Everton played uh, the one over the weekend. Uh, Onana was played as a number six, and I don't think he looked very impressive in those roles. I don't think he was bad, by the way. It's not like he was making mistakes, but you just lose so much of his drive, his energy, his final third impact by sticking him at number six. And he's good there because he's technically sound and he's a strong player and defensively good. But you just limit what makes him like like fun, you know, what makes him uh, amazing. As a number eight, you just get the best of both worlds. So I'm on the side of, you know, just let Onana roam free and don't make him the next Casemiro. He's probably the next, I don't know, maybe Bellingham or something. He, he's probably closer to that than, you know, a, a, a Casemiro. That's my take on Onana. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, th- I think I agree um, largely with what you said. Uh, I don't know if Alex has something to add. Um, but no, yeah, no, I'm not going to debate that. Honestly. Sound up very well. Yeah, fair enough. Well, oh, then, that ended really nicely. Yeah, well, on that flat note, um, I, I guess we should end the podcast because we're not taking any more. Uh, Finally, all three of us are in love and peace with each other. <laughs> yes, Let's end we have it. achieved world <laughs> peace. Uh, uh, well, so. I guess I guess that's that for the episode then. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, guys, for joining us. Um, as always, you can find all of us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Shailat Neil, which is my name flipped around. Alex is at EuroExpert underscore, and Varun uh, runs the at Devils DNA account. And of course, you can find uh, our Get Football accounts by going to at Get Football EU, and then we have all the sort of league and country specific accounts linked in the bio. So. As always, do keep a lookout on all of our uh, Get Football media outlets where we'll be covering um, football from all over the world uh, with with news, uh, articles, videos, opinions, analysis, and all sorts of things, especially as the 2023-24 season ramps up. Uh, you can find a link to most of that stuff in sort of the notes or the description of this episode, depending on where you're listening. Uh, and yeah, if you can, please do rate the podcast um, because that really helps us with our reach. And also, obviously, um, if, if, if you enjoyed it, please do share this on socials as well. But yep, thank you very much for listening. Uh, thanks to you guys for joining us. And we'll be back next week with something new. But until then, farewell.